Season's greetings, my lovely listeners. I cannot quite believe we've reached the final episode of the podcast already. I would like to take the opportunity to thank the dear people at Dog Etities for their support. Remember to use the discount code A2AS4 for 10% off your next Dog ETT order. I have been poorly with a virus and I have to say the teas have supported my recovery. So why not treat yourself to a box or two for this holiday season? Thank you to the station managers at Pantanga Radio, East London Radio Mixcloud and UK246.com for all of your support. Thank you to my guest authors and special thanks to you, my listeners, who tune into the podcast every week. I appreciate you all. In this episode, I was honoured to interview Professor Hakim Adi about his new book, African and Caribbean in Britain. Let's listen to his interview now. See you on the other side. Thank you for joining me on the Author to Author podcast today. Very much looking forward to interviewing you. I think it was 45 days ago that I interviewed you for the Simon Education's Black Book Festival back in September. I felt as though we were just getting started and then we had to stop. Um, I had a very interesting discussion. So I'm looking forward to interviewing you today. And I'll start with a standard question really is, where are you from in terms of your heritage and where in the world are you based now? My heritage is Nigerian and British, I guess you could say. My, my father was Nigerian, my mother English, both long gone now. At the moment, I'm based in sunny Kent, though it's raining at the moment. I live in a town called Whitstable, uh, which is next to the sea. If I can see the sea almost where I'm sitting now. Wonderful. I lived in London for over 40 years, but I find it the seaside more tranquil and more conducive to thinking and writing. So I, I backwards and forwards, but I'm mainly based here now. And what is it about history that fascinates you? Oh, wow. That's a long, big question. Um, I suppose what fascinates me about it today is different to what fascinated me about it when I was a, a child. So maybe I should speak as a man, not a child. <laughs> what fascinates me about it today is that it helps us understand our place in the world, uh, helps us understand the world in which we live, the situations that confront us. Um, I always say to people that history is not really about the past or only about the past, it's about the present and the future. And so history gives us that, um, that perspective on where we are, what we need to do to change things. History is the, the kind of study of change. So it helps us understand that change is normal, inevitable, and that human beings are the agency of the agents of that change. So that's one thing that's fascinating about it, because it, it shows us the potential that we have to transform our own existence and the world in which we live. It's also fascinating just because it's about people. People are fascinating uh, and very inspiring, and we can see you know, all the struggles that people have been 
engaged in in the past to transform the world in various ways. It's about life and struggle and change and such interesting people. What what is not to be fascinated by? <laughs> I mean, I have a historian at home. My son did a degree in history at Kent University. Mm-hmm. And to be able to understand and explore um, the past is really fascinating to him. And there is a school of thought that believe in order to move forward, we have to understand what's gone on before. And mm-hmm. so I, I, I understand where your fascination with history stems from. But tell us about your educational journey, how you got to this point. As I was kind of alluding to before, I always liked history even as a very young child you know a four or five year old child I would read history books and I think my fascination was a bit different to all the reasons for it were different from those I have today but anyway I was fascinated by history the past and the things that people had done in the past but as I grew up I became more aware i suppose of the the kind of racism that surrounded me really and i i began to search for an answer to it what what why was it you know not only racism in the um specific sense in which it manifested itself in the 1960s or whenever it was but how to to deal with that, how to understand it, how to analyze it. And I think like a lot of people, I began to search for information, things that, yeah, could sustain me, could inspire me. And as somebody who was fascinated by history, I began to look more and more into history, the history of Africa in particular, history of Africa and Africans. I would have been about 13 or 14, something like that. So I began to do my own research and at that young age I decided that I wanted to be a a history teacher in a school. In those years going back to the last century, early 1970s, there was an idea around in certain places that the history of Africa, history of the Caribbean and so on should be taught in schools that that, you know, there were various people experimenting with that in London and in Birmingham and other places. I knew something about those those initiatives, not very much, but something. But anyway, I persuaded myself I want to be a history teacher in a school and also that I was going to go and study African history at university. So that's what I did. I began a degree in African history at SOAS, School of Oriental and African Studies, with the aim of becoming a teacher, as I said. And then I got slightly diverted because while I was at SOAS, some professor there who's now long gone kind of took a liking to me and without me even really realizing it, applied for a, some kind of scholarship for me to do a PhD, not, not in history, but in social anthropology. So I got kind of diverted into that, began a PhD, but got fed up with it quite quickly various reasons I won't go into now and decided that this was a waste of time this academic nonsense let me go and be a teacher which is what I wanted to be so I left kind of halfway through or two years into my PhD and applied to teacher training college I was rejected 
all my applications were rejected and uh, therefore at quite a young age with a, a family <laughs> already. <laughs> I, know I was unemployed, didn't know, quite know what to do. I accidentally um, began training as a teacher again. This is about five years later. And qualified as a teacher, began teaching in FE College, various things, a little bit of history and other bits and pieces. Quickly realized then that in those days there were, you know, these things called access courses, which people today will not have heard of, but those of us who are old enough remember that. They were a way for, usually for kind of the idea was that people who didn't have traditional qualifications could take an access course to get into universities. And those courses very often would teach things that were a little bit different, including some kind of African history type things. So I did a bit of that, but I, I kind of realized that there was not much future in that. And that if I wanted to teach African history, I, I really needed to have a, get a PhD. So uh, whatever, six years or so, six or seven years after I'd left SOAS without completing a PhD in social anthropology, I reapplied to do a PhD in African history and uh, did that work part-time as a teacher for seven years and did the PhD part-time for seven years and completed that um, thinking that I was telling myself I was, you know, I'd wasted so much time and I was really behind schedule, as it were. But, you know, I should just keep going and see where it led. Rest is history, as they say. I managed to get a job and, you know, yeah, kind of work my way up the greasy pole to where I am today, as it were. And what is your role now? What do you do um, at university? My title is Professor of the History of Africa and the African Diaspora at the University of Chichester. I mean, now I have to say after 30 years or so of teaching undergraduates various aspects of the history of Africa and Africans, I don't teach any undergraduate courses now. I haven't taught any for the last three years or so. All my teaching is to postgraduate students. I have a master's program, an MRes, a master's by research in the history of Africa and the African diaspora, which, you know, we have students from all over. It's completely online. So people can join from anywhere, Africa, the Caribbean, US, Canada, Hong Kong, anywhere. Uh, so I teach that. We, we run that twice a year in September and January. And now I have about a dozen PhD students that I look after, supervise, um, so that's my main teaching work. And then obviously I write or try to write books and articles and those kinds of things. So that's my main work at the moment. You're more than just trying. You, you have done and you're a writer of many books. Um, I think the last time I counted, um, I think 10 titles, including the book that you have sent me as well. Thank you so much for your sending me two copies of your book. African and Caribbean people in Britain, a history. It's taken me ages to get through it. And the ages to, to write it. Absolutely. How long did it take for you to write the book? I can't remember exactly. I had four or five years, probably something like that. 
I can't remember exactly now, but something like that, yeah. And I listened to the audio book as well. I finished the audio book last night. I was determined to um, go and get through it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it's worthwhile going back over again, actually. So I've got a few stickers in here. It's a, a beautiful cover and also some um, beautiful photographs that are um, in the book as well. So I enjoyed looking at those. And that, that's the advantage that you have over a print copy uh, rather than audible. And um, an audio book, you can appreciate the period of time that you covered in the book. What I liked about it from the beginning was that when I was taught history at school, Black people came in at slavery and out at emancipation, and that was about it. And I remember feeling quite away, I suppose is the word, about not knowing what happened prior to people being enslaved and not really knowing that Black people, African people, have been travelling the globe for centuries since, you know, what we would call the beginning of civilization. And what was really good about reading this is that you cover all of that. I can understand how it took five years, but do you have a research team that worked <coughs> alongside you to research the book, I can't imagine how that could be just one person that's able to do all of that. How does it work? That's very kind of you. No, I don't have any. It's all me. Everything in that book is me. My research, my writing, you know, it's it's been kind of checked. I mean, there's, there may be one or two things in it, but it's been checked for spelling and so on. But, but other than that, it's all me. It's all, I'd, I've never had anyone do any research for me or anything of that kind wow if i had a research team i'd be writing you know half a dozen books uh, a year or something but no it's all me it's all my work so how easy then is it to find out about african and caribbean people in britain well we've already discussed why it's important but why was it important for you to write those books well, uh, this particular book, I was approached by Penguin to, to write it. So, I mean, that's in, in a sense, that's the reason why it's written. And it's always good to be approached by a publisher because very often getting publishers <laughs> to publish things is a struggle in itself. It's becoming a little bit easier than it was maybe 20 or 30 years ago, but it's still publishers are generally terrible characters one can say who are out to make money out of your work and, and they're all pretty bad some are badder than others anyway that's how it came to be written but it is a sort of summation or reflection of the teaching that I've done over um you know 30 years or probably more, more than that so all of that teaching and research and um, writing that I've done over, as I say, quite a long time. All of it has gone into the book. So some of it is material that I'm, that I'm familiar with or was familiar with already. A lot of it is based on the writings of others. And it was the, the, the aim of the book was to kind of summarize the research that's been done over the last 40 years or so. So it's drawing on the work of others. Some of it is based on uh, material that's available on the internet. For, for example, there is a 
a website that's been developed by various researchers at the University of Glasgow that has material from the 18th century relating to actually the, the sale of African men, women and children in this country, but also the, the efforts, the struggles of African men, women and children to liberate themselves from enslavement in Britain. So it has a lot of newspaper reports, newspaper adverts and so on. And there, there is other material like that, which is online. So some of the research I did is based on uh, material which is online. Some of it is based in archives and museums, British Library, Black Cultural Archives, National Archives at Kew. As I say, some of it based on work that I've done in the past in other archives. So there's a lot of material out there. And in the book, I give very detailed references. I'm not sure how many pages of references there are, but there are a lot of references. So everything I say is referenced. You can go and look at where I got that information from, the original articles, whether it's in the 20th century or it's in the third century, you can find other material about it. So I say it's a summary of all of this material. If people want to read all the material that I use, they can go and do that. They can check it out and, and so on. So there's a lot of material out there, and I've just tried to bring it all together and put it in a, a form that people can dip into and use as they, as they require. And that's what I found fascinating about the book. Some of those things I did know, but what I did appreciate was the fact that African people were trying to liberate themselves in this country. They weren't like passive. They weren't out on the outskirts waiting for, is it Wilberforce and others to um, liberate them. They were very much involved in the liberation of themselves. And the amount of organizations that were formed, not just in England, but alongside people in the UK, in the Caribbean, in Africa, who were also pressing for those issues to be addressed as well. And that was wonderful to, to see, you know, especially some of the powerful women who were around at that time who were fighting alongside the men in terms of bringing these issues forward. The use of the criminal justice system and the courts in terms of um, bringing cases, I thought was just, you know, you know, fantastic in terms of, I felt that people were in the fight and they were doing it, not just waiting for somebody else to come along and rescue them. So that was quite important. And going back to the book, what I liked about it was that the detailed notes and referencing in the back of the book, as you saying, people are then able to go off and check out everything. So in total, you had 114 pages of notes at the back of the book. And I thought I'd reframe that and call that receipts because very often people question, well, did that really happen? Or, you know, they want to challenge your research. Everything is in the book and where you found it from. And, and I thought that that was just absolutely fantastic in terms of uh, for college students, for graduates who are able, you know, people who are studying for degrees or just have a fascination about history can go back and look and see exactly where you got your information from. So that was absolutely wonderful. So what are your future projects? At the moment, I'm working on editing a book. It's called... Uh, I think it's called New, I forgot the title myself, I think it's called New Histories 
of African and Caribbean people in Britain. It's an it's a collection of essays, chapters by young historians, young and emerging historians, we can say, most of them of African and Caribbean heritage, not all, but the vast majority of them of African and Caribbean heritage. And those papers, chapters, was first presented at the History Matters Conference, which we held uh, this time last year, last October, as part of one of the initiatives of History Matters to encourage more young historians, particularly those of African and Caribbean heritage. So that will be coming out as published by Pluto, will be coming out in June next year. So that's the kind of most immediate project. But I'm beginning writing my next book as an author. I mean, I'm doing a little bit of work now, but it will begin in earnest in January. And that book is about Africa and the period from 1945 to 1965 or thereabouts, which people will know is the period of what is sometimes referred to as decolonization. That is to say, the ending of formal colonial rule in many parts of Africa. I'm, I'm focusing on uh, West Africa in particular, so there's countries like Ghana, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Gambia, particularly Nigeria and Ghana. I thought it was important to look at now where everybody's using the term decolonize, decolonize this, decolonize that. So I thought, okay, it's important to actually write something about what decolonization was or how it was. Generally speaking, the deed of the colonial powers, not the deed of Africans as such. And so it was important to look at that and the kind of consequences of it. And those of you who know anything about the state of Africa today will realize why that's very important. And, and many people would think that apart from having a new flag and a new national anthem and Africans assuming the positions of governments on in many ways, not much has changed. So it's looking into that whole question. It starts off from the perspective of very important event that occurred in 1945, and that is the Manchester Pan-African Congress, which, as its name suggests, was held in Manchester in that year, at which many of the key anti-colonial activists, people like Kwame Nkrumah, Jomo Kenyatta, Obafemi, Owolowo, and others participated, and they developed, elaborated a vision of a new Africa. And that new Africa was to be without colonial borders without the what they call the alien political institutions which had been imposed on it as a result of colonial rule and without the capital-centered economic system. Uh, those were the kind of key principles of it and also that the majority of the people, the wealth creators, the workers, the farmers should be at the center of these new societies. So that was their vision. So my book is looking at what happened to that vision and why was it a vision that is yet to be realized? It wasn't realized within this, those first 20 years, but many people would argue that it still remains to be realized. So the book is looking at that, what, what actually went on during that period. Thank you for that. And you said that that book is due out June 2023. No, 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 no. I said I just start working on it in January. It won't be out for... However long it takes me to write, I don't know, two or four oh, years, probably, okay. probably five years' time. Right. Oh, wow. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, that's a big project. 
My next question is, is that if you could spend a period of time in the past or in the future, where would you like to go? I'd like to go into the future. <laughs> because the future is going to be better than the past, I think. We, we will make it better. So I'm not sure how far I'd have to go into the, into the future for it to be better. But um, the future, yeah, holds out all kinds of possibilities for people to empower themselves and become the decision makers about everything that affects our lives. And maybe to, to realize that vision that I've just referred to uh, in regard to Africa and Africa without colonial borders, without alien political institutions and without a capital-centered economic system. So, yeah, I would definitely go to that future if the possibility existed of doing that, which it doesn't, unfortunately. So we have to make that future ourselves now. Uh, we have to continue fighting for that future, just as people in the past fought for their future or for our futures as they are today. And um, we're no longer confronted with, uh, you know, the forms of, enslavement or the forms of colonial rule or the other challenges that people faced in the past we have our own challenges to face but uh, we've been spared if that's the right expression those challenges that people had 100 years ago or 200 years ago because of their struggles because of their commitment because of their sacrifices and so we have the same kind of responsibilities how easy is it for budding researchers or historians to access information. My great-grandfather was a seaman in the First World War, but I wouldn't have a clue about where to start to find out more about him, what regiment he was in, etc. So do you have any advice for people who would like to look into their own history? It's always good to kind of read something which introduces you to that history. And obviously there are books around about those who came from the Caribbean or Africa or who were based here from those places who made their contributions. There's also the National Archives at Kew, which holds more kind of detailed information about of service records. And if you go online, the National Archives does provide some information to help researchers because a lot of people go to national archives to basically research their family history so it will provide some information online there are also people at the national archives who can assist with those kinds of searches and point you in the right direction so it is possible to look into that history there may be other material that's around us certainly if um, you know people lost their lives there are some memorials, there's Commonwealth War Graves Commission and others who can provide similar information. And there are people who write about those uh, memorials as well. So there is information people can find. And I would think a few Google searches will probably bring up some of that information. It's, of course, important to remember that although um, many people, in fact, actually millions of people, from Africa, the Caribbean, as well as elsewhere in the empire as it then was, made their contributions during the First and Second World Wars. And men as well as women um, made those contributions. And for a variety of reasons, um, not necessarily uh, because they were duped into 
supporting king and empire, but sometimes because it was a way of escaping from the colonies, sometimes because they believed that by participating in the war, that would lead to political changes. They'd have, they'd have a stronger kind of bargaining position for political changes. Some, uh, you know, out of a sense of adventure or because they wanted to see other parts of the world. And so there are many reasons why people enlisted. But it, it's also important to remember that many people, particularly in, I'm thinking of the First World War now, that many people opposed conscription, refused to serve. And one of the most well-known of those is a man called Isaac Hall, who was a Jamaican here in, in Britain, who refused to fight at a time of conscription. And at that time, that was and essentially an illegal act. So he was imprisoned, tortured. Uh, in Pen- I think he was imprisoned in Pentonville, if I remember rightly. I mentioned him in the book. Um, but he made a very clear statement, or a statement which is attributed to him, because it, it may actually have come from somebody else, but the statement is attributed to him, explaining why he wouldn't fight in the war, that essentially it was a fight between two gangs of robbers to divide the world between them. Um, and there was no way he was going to, participate in that and then there were others so there were others who who took a similar stand then there were those in africa who rose up and rebelled against the war the most famous of whom is a man called joseph chilembwe who led a rebellion in what was then the colony of Nyasaland, today uh, malawi in southern africa and he again gave his life in that rebellion but is commemorated today as a national hero of Malawi and is on banknotes and that kind of thing. But there were there were others because in Africa, many people, men, women were conscripted, um, not just into the armed forces, but as auxiliaries, as porters, in a variety of capacities. And we also have to remember that the First World War began in Africa. The first shots were fired in Africa and it ended in Africa. The last shots, we could say. So it was very much as much an African war as it was a European war. Obviously, it's called World War, uh, but some people sometimes forget that it was fought in Africa and in other parts of the world. So that information is around. I mean, it takes a little bit of searching, but people can can find this kind of information. Yes, and, and that's what I do know about my great-grandfather because he was killed in North Africa. Maybe that's a starting point in terms of trying to find out you know, more about more about him. I know that his family paid for his body to be embalmed and sent back to Barbados, which bankrupted the family to be able to do that at that time of history. But then that's all I really know about him. So thank you for that, because um, there are these resources there, like the National Archives at Kew and so on, which could act as a starting point for people who are interested in finding out what's happening with their family. A case like that, where, you know, this kind of correspondence, presumably between the war office and the family, and the family's in Barbados, so it probably has to go through, you know, the governor or the colonial government of Barbados. There's bound to be some, almost certainly to be some correspondence about all of that. And there may even be stuff in local papers in Barbados, you know, that somebody's died in combat and their body's being returned. And there's going to be some, you know, maybe there was some ceremony. It's, you know, it's worth having a look and seeing what's in the Barbados 
papers and also there may be stuff in the archives in Barbados. I'm not sure exactly what the archives in Barbados hold, but it's possible to think to, to find out more about that. I think one thing that the British or Empire was very good at was recording um, in terms of, you know, writing things down, you know, how many chattel they had, how many people they enslaved, their names, gender, age, when they died, etc. And this whole thing about, you know, you would have a child and maybe name the child by one name. But then when they got christened two years later, when the priest happened to come around and visit that village, he would then give the child another name, tended to be a European name. And you have a lot of Caribbean people, especially I'll speak for Barbados, who have one name that's um, documented, but they go by another name when they're at home with their families. So that was quite sure. um, a, a ph phenomenon. I was going to say the other thing to talking about and going back to one of your first questions about how I research things or where material comes from. You know, you're quite right that there are a lot of records and one of the most important sources of records, particularly for the 20th century, or also earlier centuries, are police records. You're looking at political organisations or Pan-African organisations that existed here in the 1920s or 1930s. 1940s many of them if not all of them were under not only police surveillance but special branch surveillance mi5 surveillance and some of these records are preserved not all of them because obviously the security services try and keep something secret so you can find you know phone tapping information you can find letters that have been opened or reports of letters that have been opened or reports of people under surveillance and so on, all in the National Archives. And that's an important source of information. As with all sources, you have to, you can't necessarily just rely on one source. You have to look at other things. But certainly that kind of information where the, the state uh, monitors the activities of, of people is an important source of information for historians. And unfortunately, nothing has changed, you know, um, having read your book and followed the murder of Stephen Lawrence as well. You know, in your book, you talk about Doreen Lawrence and her family being under surveillance as well when they were the victims of, um, you know, horrific crimes, yet the police chose to investigate them. And they're, they're probably not the only family that have been investigated as well. So um, I found that link quite crucial that that hadn't changed. But Yeah, that's, um, that's right. I mean, one of the other yeah. families are the families of Roland Adams, and people may remember who was also killed in southeast London. But many of those families, of course, there's now an ongoing investigation into essentially police spies, undercover spies, spy cops, as they're called. Um, so many of those families made representations to that um, investigation, including the family of Roland Adams and Stephen Lawrence and others who were, because there were many who fell into that category of being under police surveillance. And I mean, the book, you're right, the book goes into many of these things in some detail because there are so many of these cases i mean the stephen lawrence case is perhaps the most infamous because it's still kind of ongoing um the, the actual death of stephen lawrence 
occurred in the last century. But the consequences, the ramifications, the fallout of police, uh, what can you call it, corruption, ineptitude, racism, uh, the surveillance of the family, all of that has carried on into the 21st century and, and is still ongoing at this point. So, I mean, that gives a very clear idea of how the state operates. And it's, it was quite important in the book to present that because when we talk about racism and so on, the key source of racism is the, the state itself. And particularly, I mean, not just the police, but also the judicial system, the whole government, governmental system. Um, and it was important to bring that out in the book, I say, especially for the 20th century, where it's so blatant and becomes even more blatant almost every it's all it's kind of all around us so it was important to, to chronicle that in the book okay moving on when you're not writing books when you're not doing research how do you spend your time how do you relax how do i relax well i i go on holiday as well <laughs> that's that's the main way i relax totally i tend to go on holiday to somewhere quiet, like Barbados, for example. It's a nice, quiet place. So I go and spend a few weeks there, swimming in the sea every morning at dawn, that kind of thing. Uh, if I can't do that, I do things like, uh, you know, I play table tennis regularly every week uh, for a few hours every week. I watch football, go to football matches with my son. I listen to music a lot, I would say, different types of music, depending on, could be anything from, you know, it could be anything from reggae to opera, depending on my mood uh, and everything in between, as it were. When I'm on holiday, I tend to read, usually autobiographies is my kind of reading for relaxation. I walk every day, walk by the sea, which is very tranquilizing. Yeah, I kind of chat to my friends, those kind of things, nothing, you know, that's, that's the kind of basis of my relaxation, I would say. It sounds as though you've been able to create a really good work-life balance as well, and that your hobbies are totally away from the heavy research and um, and, and that kind of work, which is really good. I know that you're really busy. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it is important to have things that you really like doing that you relax to. And I try to, I believe in working hard, playing hard and resting hard. Yeah, that's a wonderful quote. If people wanted to get in contact with you, find out where you're going to be next year in particular, um, how would they do that? They can go to my website www.hakimadi.org which usually if i update it regularly uh, will have where i'm speaking they can check me i'm on social media they can check me on twitter on facebook or on instagram yeah that's probably the main way because if i'm if i'm going to be somewhere that you'll know about it on social media because that those are the things i tend to put on social media so yeah i'm easy to easy to follow and find and if people wanted to get hold of a copy of your book, but where can they do that? How they can get it? a copy of the book from any good bookshop. All the main chains, 
such as Waterstones and should have it. They can also get it online. Obviously, it's on Amazon, it's on Hive, it's on, or they can get it directly from Penguin. Yeah, it's available in as a book, as an audio book, also as an ebook. So it's in all formats. It will eventually come out in paperback, probably about a year's time, something like that. But um, it's quite nice as a hardback. It's not too expensive as a hardback, and it's nearly 700 pages, so it's quite good to have in that form as it is. And what I didn't say earlier is it covers about 10,000 years of Britain's history. Um, so it's there's quite a lot of it for people to dip into. Uh, most definitely. It's definitely a book that I will go back to, you know, especially in mine in my field where I'm often called upon to be a guest lecturer and, you know, it's good to go back and be able to actually not just tell stories, but to actually go back and find something that's factual. So that's been fantastic as well. So when I was looking at violence against women and girls and the tragic death and murder of Sarah Averad, I couldn't actually speak about her unless I covered Cherry Gross and Cynthia Jarrett and Sarah Reed and those people. And so this book is going to be invaluable in terms of going back and saying, well, you know, this is a really, this should be essential reading on any policing course for people to understand how these things have evolved. You know, we didn't just arrive here. There's a, his, a whole history behind it. But Professor Hakim, I really want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to um, talk to me. And I'm looking forward to seeing what you do next in terms of, I know that so far the book has been very well received. I've seen packed halls and auditoriums of people who have come out to support you um, and to get hold of the book. And I'm looking forward to seeing what you do next in a few years time. Um, will you come back on the podcast to tell us about your new book? Love to come back anytime, anytime I'm invited. Well, many thanks and bye for now. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Professor Hakim Adi. It is competition time now. Professor Hakim was looking forward to getting some winter sun. Where was he travelling to? Taking part in the competitions couldn't be easier. Leave me a message on Instagram at Loving the Author or on Facebook at Loving the Author Pamela R. Haynes. Do so by this Friday to win a copy of Professor Hakim's book. African and Caribbeans in Britain. Good luck, have a Merry Christmas and a peaceful New Year. Bye for now.